How's it going, my fellow history scholars? Welcome back to the podcast where we talk about the unanswered questions of history and unravel the mystery of the many questions we ask about our past. Before we begin today, I would like to remind you guys that the Facebook page is out. Don't forget to check that for information on the episode and to ask questions as well to stay up to date on information concerning the podcast. Don't forget to show your support for this podcast by donating on our Anchor website, the awesome podcast server that we use to make all of these episodes possible. And at the end today, we are going to give some shout outs to those who have already liked the Facebook page. Today, we are going to talk about the conquistadors and the Spanish treasure fleet. We're going to finish a topic that we started, and uh, this is part two of that series. Uh, This is perfect for all of those aspiring treasure hunters and Indiana Jones out there. This is a real treasure that we're talking about today. 400 million in coins still not discovered in a coastal area stretching from Melbourne to Fort Pierce known as the Florida Treasure Coast. Today we're going to talk about this lost treasure and we'll talk about the Spanish occupation of the Americas as well as where they got this treasure, the 1622 fleet and the 1715 fleet. I'd like to begin today with a quote by Mel Fisher, the person responsible for this discovery of the 1622 fleet. Today is the day. Alright, it's just me today, and uh, this is part two, so I hope you guys enjoy. Alright, let's start. First, we're going to talk about mining and transportation. So last time we talked about the Spanish conquistadors and uh, we talked about how they conquered these Indian tribes or Native American to be more exact, because uh, we also learned that the term Indian even came from Christopher Columbus, who thought he was landing in India. So uh, these conquistadors conquer these Native American tribes and they get all their treasure and they uh, they build colonies and they push inwards towards the American continent and they. They're able to find all this gold and stuff via the tribes, but then there's another method that they also use to do this, and that is uh, with mining. So besides the conquest of these cultures, mining was also very important as a practice in the New World because it helped Spain build its wealth. Uh, One of these mines in particular was uh, extremely helpful. In 1545, silver ore was discovered at the Cerro Rico mountain in the Andes near the Bolivian city of Potosi. I don't have uh, Ian as my Spanish translator, so might butcher some of this pronunciation. Uh, but Cerro Rico was famous for providing vast quantities of silver for Spain during this period. And uh, actually, 85% of the silver produced in the central Andes during this time actually came from Cerro Rico. So this was the richest silver mine that the Spanish conquistadors would ever have. It, uh, it played a very influential part. Not only did they uh, did they conquer the tribes, but... Uh, because of mines like this, because of mines like Cerro Rico, they were also able to get tons and tons of gold and silver. So this also played a very important part. Um, and then uh, this mine became the richest source of silver ever seen. And reportedly, if it was all smelted down, you could actually make a bridge from Potosi to Madrid. That's crazy. You could cross the entire ocean on a bridge of silver from Potosi to Madrid based off how much silver this mine actually provided. That's crazy to think about, guys. Uh, however, this came at a price uh, of the Native American labor that they used to uh, to mine all this ore. And uh, that actually became known by the Native Americans as the mountain that eats men because of how, uh, how terrible and uh, tragic it was on these Native American tribes that had to work in these mines. Uh, 
Um, and then uh, as Spanish conquistadors took over the Incan, Mayan, and Aztec, uh, mines like Cerro Rico would also play a major source in the wealth of Spain's New World Empire, like we were talking about before. These mines were extremely important to gathering the wealth that Spain would become the richest country in the world off this wealth that they found in the New World. So after gathering all of this up, uh, after gathering up all this New World treasure, it was finally time for transportation, and uh, Spain noticed a problem, however, in 1537. Uh, French privateers, so uh, the Spain had colonized the Americas, but uh, other countries gathered influence, and they wanted to see what, what was going on in America as well. So they, uh, so the French privateers came over, particularly, and uh, they actually captured nine of the treasure ships that were sailing from Havana, Cuba, based off Spain. And we'll talk about a little bit how this is organized later but uh pirates played a very important part in how the system was ultimately organized because uh they had to figure out a way that the pirates wouldn't be able to attack them they had all this wealth they weren't going to lose it to uh french privateers or english privateers like uh, sir francis drake who we'll talk about a little bit later um so what they did uh the french had captured these nine treasure ships off the coast of havana cuba and uh, it made Spain send a fleet of warships to escort these ships back to Spain. And so uh, these warships that came to escort them, this convoy actually became known as the first real treasure fleet. And that's what the treasure fleet was. It was these uh, ships that would protect the treasure ships on the way back to Spain. Uh, the official treasure fleet was finally organized in 1564 because of this event that happened in Havana, Cuba. So uh, this protection system was designed by Pedro Menendez de Avils, born in February 15, 1519 in Avils, Spain. Uh, he was a Spanish explorer and admiral who founded St. Augustine and became the first governor of Florida. He helped by organizing ships into two big convoys, the Tierra Firma for South American ships and the Nueva Espana for Mesoamerican ships. Guys, remember, we were talking about that before. I said to uh, remember Nueva Espana. That's because Nueva Espana became the Mesoamerican fleets, and then uh, Tierra Firma was South American. Um, because of all the wealth that they had, they had to divide it up like this. They had to have a, a convoy or a fleet of ships from Mesoamerica, and then they had to have another convoy from South America. It shows you how much silver and gold they were actually gathering from these tribes since they had to use two different fleets. So it's pretty interesting. Uh, like we talked about before, Nueva Espana, uh, talk about the Nueva Espana now. Uh, the Nueva Espana, it sailed along the Gulf of Mexico until reaching Havana, Cuba, where it would rendezvous with uh, Tierra Firma. So uh, they would take their own different routes, but then uh, ultimately they would meet up at Havana, Cuba, and they would sail along the coast of Florida over to North Carolina and then over to Spain. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. So uh, the Nueva Espana itself, it sailed along the Gulf of Mexico until reaching Havana, Cuba. And then uh, often along this route, the ships would actually be destroyed by hurricanes in areas like Veracruz, Mexico, Texas, and Florida's east coast. So the Florida Treasure Coast. But I found this interesting because uh, we also have Spanish galleons off the coast of Texas. You don't think of Texas as being a very coastal area where you could find ships like this. But uh, they, think they sank along the coast of Treasure as well, along the coast of Texas as well which is pretty interesting if you think about it. All right, uh, so I'm talking about the Tierra Firma. 
uh, Tierra Firma for South American treasure ships, uh, it took a much longer route, and it required some storehouses, mule trains, and ports to protect it along the way. And uh, it ultimately ended up proving a more dangerous task than the Nueva Espana in escorting this treasure and transporting it back to Spain. Uh, before transporting to the Tierra Firma fleet, the South Seas fleet would sail from Lima, Peru, mainly carrying treasure from the Inca and silver mines to Panama, where it would then be loaded onto mule trains. So, ultimately, the Nueva, Nueva Espana sorry, and the Tierra Firma were the major two fleets, but they also had uh, fleets like the South, South Seas Fleet, who, uh, who played minor roles along the way. The South Seas Fleet would sail from Lima to Panama, like I said, and uh, then it takes it to this mule train. And the mule train is a very important aspect of this because um, this specific route in general from Panama to Portobello, this mule train, it became known as the El Camino Real or the King's Highway. And uh, the King's Highway was important because it proved a very dangerous task when transporting this treasure. And uh, it was known to be frequented by pirates, uh, Sir Francis Drake, most notably. Uh, he attacked the mule train. Uh, there was 190 in the mule train at this time. Uh, he attacked it near a storage town named Nombre de Dios. And uh, in April 1573, he stole enough, actually, from this treasure and this mule train to uh, re-garrison his ship, the Pelican. So even the mule train had uh, had enough silver, at least, to re-garrison his ship, which, is ha which, has, which had to be a lot back then, if you think about it. That's pretty crazy. And then uh, supposedly the slaves who would carry the treasure along this mule train, along this trail, would also flee. And uh, they would actually work with pirates to attack the Spanish, interestingly enough. Uh, this is why the Spanish had uh, stored in safe houses like uh, Nombre de Dios and the King's Warehouse in Portobello. Uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, and then uh, Tierra Firma would sail from uh, Cartagena a large port city on the north coast of Colombia, to Portobello, where it would pick up the treasure from the king. So the South Seas Fleet would sail from Lima to Panama, and then it would cross uh, the El Camino Real, or the King's Highway. It would meet the it would meet the Tierra Firma Fleet, who had sailed from Cartagena to Portobello. Uh, if you guys have a map handy, or if you want to look it up later, uh, this is along the isthmus that's that the isthmus where the panama canal is obviously um so it was a small strip of land but this mule train also ended up being a really dangerous trail but uh the tierra firma would pick up from this mule train uh it would they would store it in storehouses to keep it protected from pirates they would pick it up and then they would sail up to havana cuba and they would meet the nueva Spana fleet Uh, after going to Havana, Cuba, it would meet up with the uh, Nueva Spana fleet, and then from uh, Havana, Cuba, which was the spot, which was the hub of Spanish activity essentially for its time, uh, the two frigates or the fleets would sail together, and then uh, they'd go up the east coast of Florida, catching the trade winds along the Atlantic, and then sailing along the east coast of the United States, riding the Gulf Stream up to Cape Hatteras in modern-day North Carolina. And finally, heading back eastward towards Spain. So this was a long route that these ships took, and it was not an easy route either. Uh, 
conquering the tribes probably was easier than transporting the treasure itself, which proved a very interesting fact. Uh, however, with all this arduous work that they would do, with all these mule trains and storehouses and fleets that they would gather and that they would use to transport this treasure, uh, ultimately it just wouldn't work. Uh, in the years specifically, uh, 1554, 1622, 1628, 1715, and 1733. Because all of these fleets would meet hurricanes along the east coast of Florida. They could have planned it out perfectly to the T besides this, but running into the hurricanes, they they got screwed over anyways. They, they There was nothing that they could do. And so this east coast of Florida where all these ships would meet the hurricanes and they'd get attacked, this became known as the Florida's treasure coast. All right, now we'll talk about the 1622. The 1622 fleet left on September 4th, 1622, and uh, they ultimately chose this date, interesting, interestingly enough, because uh, all the planets were aligning. So they thought it would bring them good luck, and as we'll learn, that wasn't the case. Um, the manifest, and if you don't know what a manifest is, that's essentially what the ship was carrying. Uh, their manifest had a ton of stuff. Uh, it included 24 tons of silver bullion, 180,000 pesos of silver coin, 582 copper ingots, 125 gold bars and discs, 350 indigo chests, 525 tobacco bales, 20 bronze cannons, 1,200 pounds of silverware, and 70 pounds of emeralds. That's a whole lot of stuff. whole lot of stuff. Jeez, I can't even imagine. That's like an actual treasure ship there. Um, most of this valuable cargo was um, from New Spain, the New Spain fleet. Uh, and or sorry, most of the valuable cargo that the New Spain fleet carried was uh, transferred the transferred to the Tierra Firma fleet or the South American fleet. Uh, this was because the Tierra Firma fleet had more heavily armed galleons that they needed to protect the fleet. So whatever worked better to make sure that these ships would actually get back, they they do that. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, in 1622, Spain was actually amidst the Thirty Years' War against the French and the Dutch. So uh, if you can imagine, the king of king of Spain wanted his treasure so he could pay off this war. He, he, he needed the money. He could continue fighting against the French and the Dutch. So the pressure was put on the Spanish treasure fleet to get it there on time or get it there even early if they could do that. So... Uh, as we'll see, this resulted in some drastic measures that ultimately didn't end up being good for the Spanish treasure fleet or even the King of Spain. Uh, the new Spain fleet left Havana first, while the Tierra Firma fleet ended up leaving Havana six weeks behind schedule. So uh, even the drastic measures impacted them by uh, them leaving late. I'm, Or at least that's what I'm assuming. Uh, and this kind of screwed them over too. Because they left six weeks early, they ultimately ended up leaving during the hurricane season as well, which was not a good thing for them. And uh, 28 of these vessels, uh, the fleet, including galleons and merchant vessels, so uh, not only was it the Spanish treasure galleons, which we know more about, uh, but also these merchant vessels, which played an important part as well. Uh, 
the flagship or the Capitana or the lead trip or the lead ship of this fleet was uh, Nuestra Señora de la Candelaria. I'm butchering my Spanish. I'm sorry. Uh, or the front guard. It was a ship that was in the front that would protect the treasure. And then uh, the Nuestra Señora de Atocha or the Almiranta was uh, the last ship in this convoy. And it was the rear guard. It protected the back of the fleet. So he had the Almiranta on the front. Or the sorry, the Almiranta in the back, and then the Capitan in the front. Uh, these ships, they were sailing from Havana, Cuba. They uh, they were sailing up along the Florida Keys, and uh, the convoy actually became separated by the hurricane winds that were that were known in this area, especially since they left during the hurricane season, which was not a good move for them. Uh, Twenty of these vessels made it out safely, and they managed to ride out the storm. However, eight of these vessels from the back of the convoy, were forced on the forced onto the shallow reefs, and uh, they were ultimately destroyed. They were capsized and they were sunk. Uh, and in this aftermath, with all these, with all this hurricane, sorry, with the hurricane that impacted this fleet, uh, in the aftermath, only five survivors made it out. Uh, three of these were sailors, and then two of these, two of these were slaves. Among these ships that sunk because of this hurricane were the, most notably at least, the Atocha and the Santa Margarita, which will, uh, which will be important for Mel Fisher, who, uh, who was one of the greatest treasure hunters in the history of the world, in my opinion at least, uh, and we'll talk about him now. Let's get into Mel Fisher and the 1622 fleet. So, uh, Mel Fisher and the 1622 fleet. Uh, in 1953, for their honeymoon, Mel Fisher actually took his wife, Dolores Fisher, wreck diving for their first time off the Florida Keys. The experience had such an impact that the couple opened the first dive shop in Redondo Beach, California. So, uh, he took him diving, he took her diving and they were just chilling, and uh, it became such a hobby for them that it would later become uh, most of their life and their obsession. Uh, Mel Fisher had been many things throughout his life up to this point. We'll talk about some of those. He had been a carpenter. He had been a musician. He had been an engineer, a World War II veteran, uh, an inventor. But diving was very much a new field for him, and it would ultimately be what he was best known for. Uh, he was He was very good at it. And being financed from commercial diving of spiny lobsters, the fishers would actually play a major role in establishing the sport of recreational diving. So he had done all this stuff out. He had done all this stuff before. He tried out tons of different things in his life. He had done tons of different things, had tons of different experiences. But uh, he finds diving, and diving really becomes his passion and becomes what he's best known for. And uh, Mel Fisher and the with uh, how good he was at diving would ultimately be this diving would ultimately become what made him the most money. And uh, it would have an important impact on his wife's life as well. Uh, they've played such an important part in the sport of recreational diving. In fact, that Mel's wife, Dolores had set the world record for the lungs continued period underwater at 55 hours or more than two days. I can't even imagine diving for that long. It doesn't even seem humanly possible. You're under the water for 55 hours. You wonder what mental factors come into play 
when you're under the water for that long. That's crazy to think about. Uh, more than 65,000 new divers were trained at the shop. And uh, during their free time, Mel would actually pioneer underwater filming, too. Uh, and he would make movies, and he would host a weekly dive show uh, in the early days of television. So he very much used his passion, and it got him a ton of money for it. He got a ton of money for it. Uh, and he shared this passion with others. Like I said, uh, he trained 65,000 new divers. That would be a, I think that'd be an amazing experience to be dive trained under Mel Fisher. Who's uh, one of the greatest treasure hunters the world's ever known. That'd be such a cool thing. Uh, the hunt for the Atocha officially began in 1969, marking the beginning of a very long and painstaking process, but it would ultimately establish Mel Fisher's legacy. Throughout this journey, the Fishers had faced the most difficult challenges to man when uh, people drowned and died diving, uh, their boats had capsized in the event of massive storms, and they, they had even lost loved ones, including some of their own children. So this was not an easy process for them, finding the Atocha. It would come at a very high price, and uh, it would be very hard for them, essentially. I can't even imagine you lose some of your own kids just to find this Spanish treasure galleon. That's crazy to think about. Uh, so he put a lot of hard work, sweat, and blood into this. Uh, yet not all of his hope was lost when in the 1980s, they began finding remnants of the fleet. And uh, in the year 1980, Mel, Tre Mel Fisher's Treasure Salvaging, which was uh, a company that he had established to go after the Atocha, uh, they, they would actually come across the Atocha, the Atocha sister ship, sorry, the Santa Margarita, who we talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, and in an act of pure luck, as the wreck site stretched across 100 feet wide by 10 miles long, that's crazy to think about, uh, they would ultimately find this ship. Uh, it wouldn't be until five years later, though, uh, in, in July of 1985, that the team would finally discover the Atocha, and this would be the culmination representing the peak of Mel Fisher's career as a treasure hunter. The legendary Nuestra Señora de Atocha, or Our Lady of Atocha, with its massive cargo and treasure from the New World, was found in the lower Florida Keys off the Dry Tortugas. So this was a five-year treasure hunt. This did not take a short amount of time. He had to put a lot of effort into finding this ship, and he's very honored because of that. If you ever get the chance, uh, I recommend you guys go down to the Mel Fisher Heritage Mer Sorry, the Mel Fisher's Maritime Heritage Society Museum, where he has a lot of the treasure and stuff that he's found. He has a lot of that showcased, and he's, you can go see that, and you can see the effort that he put in, and uh, some of the boats that he used, some of the diving equipment he used, the stuff he found most notably, which is which is crazy. These uh, these crosses with Brazilian emeralds in them, uh, these gold and silver coins, these gold bars. Uh, there's actually a story about Mel Fisher where uh, he would actually hide gold coins inside of a cake if he ever had a guest over, and the guest would have to try to find the gold coin and not choke on it. So that's kind of funny. 
he had this much wealth. You can look up pictures of him. There's a there's a picture of him in a white suit, just chilling with his treasure, with his gold chains and gold coins and stuff. And this man really, he really put in the work, and it was rewarding for him. It ultimately ended up proving very very rewarding. Um, expedition excavation, sorry, were led by Malfisher's chief archaeologist Duncan Mathewson, and uh, it. It uncovered $400 million worth of artifacts and treasure. So that's a whole lot of treasure, too. I can't even imagine finding that much treasure. That's crazy to think about. Uh, yeah, the rights to the fleet were contested by the state of Florida, uh, and they began arguing for the rights to the treasure. And um, finally, after eight years of litigation in 1982, the case would be brought before the Supreme Court. So even if you find this treasure, it's not guaranteed that you'll get to keep it. He had to fight eight years worth of court battles just to be able to get uh not even 100 percent of the treasure get some of the treasure and we'll talk about that uh after the eight years of litigation in 1982 the case was brought before the supreme court uh and then uh this was where fisher had agreed to a contract where 25% of the treasure would go to the state of Florida and then the rest would be showcased in the newly formed museum, Mel Fisher's Maritime Heritage Society. So he didn't even get all of the treasure that he rightfully found. He only got 75%, which is still the majority of it, but he should have, you think. He only got 75%, which is still the majority of it, but he should have you think have gotten a hundred percent of this treasure. So it doesn't seem fair, but you know, he put in all, all he put in all this hard work and this effort to find this treasure and he didn't want to get a hundred percent of it. So I don't agree with that, but you know, the, the political system is what it is. The name Mel Fisher, because of this find, uh, it would be in pop culture all over television and books. Uh, it would talk about his life and the treasure fleet and the impact that he would have on American culture was huge. It showed that you could be a treasure hunter and a real treasure hunter at that, that you could find these amazing things. And uh, it's crazy to think about, really. And uh, I'm talking about the museum a little bit. Uh, located at 200 Green Street in Key West, Florida, the Mel Fisher Maritime Heritage Society Museum. Uh, shows tons of different exhibits and infographs uh and it's good for kids and adults alike because they can look at the extensive amount of treasure from the atosha and the santa margarita and uh, most recently the ship that they found because they're still doing excavations uh the ship that they just found that had rita mary which was part of the fleet as well um talking about excavations and how they're still doing that, I might actually be able to go work for them. Uh, I was in contact with Mel Fisher's granddaughter, Nicole Fisher. Uh, she's a wonderful woman, and she does a lot of work over there at the Mel Fisher Maritime, Maritime Heritage Society Museum. Jeez, I'm stumbling on my words today. But she she pretty much runs all of the, runs all of the stuff now because Mel Fisher passed away a few years back. Uh, and their most recent project was uh, Henry to Mary, which I just found not that long ago. And uh, I might be able to go down there and work for them. I was talking to her sophomore year and in, uh, independent study I did for uh, my one of my years at school with my teacher. 
And uh, it was a really good experience. Uh, she's an amazing lady, and the work that they're still doing to honor Mel's legacy, they're trying to find the rest of the fleet still. Uh, it's amazing that the work, that's amazing the work that they're doing. And I might be able to go work for them, which would be really cool. Artifacts among this collection included thousands of gold coins and silver, um, escudos, minded and mined and minted in the new world as currency to use in Spain. So they would even make uh, they would make the coins themselves in Spain. They would mine it, they would mint it, and then they'd ship it. So pretty good service for Spain that they got here. Uh, particularly, I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, there was an emerald and gold cross, which is beautiful. You guys can probably look it up on... You guys can probably look it up online and they're... Their webpage, I think I'll include a link in the description if I haven't already. But uh, this cross is beautiful. And uh, it was actually going to go to uh, the Catholic Church in Rome. Uh, so this cross, I never made it there, was found by Mel Fisher. And uh, you can go look at it today. And it's beautiful. Uh, not only did Spain become rich during this time because of the treasure, but uh, the Catholic Church as well, which uh, Spain was predominantly Catholic. A lot of the wealth would go to them. Uh, Spain was predominantly Catholic. A lot of the wealth would go to them as well. So the church would become really wealthy too. And uh, tons of cathedrals and churches would also be established in the New World. You guys can look more into that. Uh, missionaries would go out and preach to the Indians and try to convert them. And uh, we talked about how that went over. <laughs> but uh, this was a beautiful cross. You guys should look up a picture of it. It's really cool. Uh, people are able to even touch some of the artifacts from these ships, and uh, they're able to engage with interactive exhibits that describe the life of Mel Fisher and the New World during the time of the Spanish treasure fleet. So uh, all of this was designed by Mel Fisher starting in the 1960s to design a place where he and the members of the Treasure Salvage Inc. could go. So if you guys have ever heard of Oak Island, it's like the Oak Island War Room. They, they have a museum there, too, at Oak Island. This was the equivalent that Mel Fisher had in Florida. At least that's my opinion. Uh, they'd meet up. They'd plan. They'd talk about where they were going to go next. They'd talk about the Spanish ships that they were going to go after and the stuff that they were going to look for and find and uh, the equipment they were going to use and all this really cool, interesting stuff. Uh, and then, besides being a museum, the place is actually an archive where researchers can go and study the history behind the treasure fleets. So not only can you look in the museum, was it? It was a meeting place too, but it was also a it was also an archive. So you can go there too. And uh, if you want to go look for Spanish galleons, there you go. That's a place you can go get some primary sources, do your reading, your research, and uh, you can go look for the treasure fleet yourself. Uh, a conservation laboratory on top of that. Uh, to preserve the artifacts that they found in the water, and uh, and a gift shop. So, you know, don't forget about the gift shop part. <laughs> uh, you can actually buy artifacts recovered from excavations, and uh, maybe they'll even buy an artifact that was brought up by Mel Fisher himself. How cool would that be? So, Mel Fisher had dedicated so much time and effort into finding this treasure fleet and treasure fleet galleons and all this Spanish treasure. Uh, I just want to say what you can do with hard work is crazy to think about. This man, he spent five years of 
mud, sweat, blood, and tears to find this treasure fleet galleon, and now he's known as one of the world's greatest treasure hunters. So the old saying that you can do whatever you want as long as you set your mind to it, that saying really stands true, and this is an example of that. This is an example of what you can really do if you put your mind to it. It's crazy to think about all the work and the effort and the stuff that he did to find this. Uh, his work was amazing, and uh, he definitely deserves all the credit set. He definitely deserves all the credit that goes towards him. Uh, currently, Mel's Fisher, Mel Fisher's granddaughter, Nicole Fisher, I was talking about earlier, uh, she owns a museum, the Mel Fisher Maritime Heritage Society, and uh, they're still making efforts today to uncover the rest of the 1622 treasure fleet. Uh, people can buy share the, shares of the museum, actually, and uh, I think I have the, the sheet here. They have you fill out a form and stuff where you, uh, where you can work for them and then you can get um, a small share of the treasure. And uh, you can actually go join the team and you can participate in dives and uh, go sifting for emeralds on the boat while the divers are down in the water. So uh, it's, it's some really cool work that you can do actually. You can go join Mel Fisher's team and you can do this yourself. So it's not just a story guys. You can go look for the treasure fleet if you really want to. It's down there and there's people you can talk to. I've talked to some of these people before. And uh, it's very possible. You guys could do it, too. All right. 1622 fleet. Wrapped that all up. Uh, now let's talk about the 1715 Spanish treasure fleet. All right. Let's talk about the 1715 Spanish treasure fleet. It was in the summer of July 31st. Oh, 20, oh, sorry. Uh, July 31st, 2019 will be the 304th anniversary of the 1715 Spanish treasure fleet sinking. So uh, I marked that date on my calendar, actually, because I think it's pretty interesting. Uh, and it was at 2 in the morning on a Wednesday, on July 31st, 1715, seven days after departing Havana, Cuba, that this plate fleet, and uh, it's called the plate fleet because of all the silver that it had. It was uh, primarily a Tierra Firma fleet composing of 11 ships that made up this fleet that would sink off the east coast of Florida. Uh, made out of 11 ships, uh, Nuestra Senora de la Concepcion uh, was probably the best of them, and that was a flagship led by Captain General Juan Esteban de Ubila. Uh, Juan Esteban is actually mentioned in the movie Fool's Gold, and uh, Matthew McConaughey goes after that treasure. That's an interesting movie. Uh, I recommend it to you guys. Uh, take it with a grain of salt, though, because, you know, it's a movie. It's a Hollywood movie. Now, it's not going to be 100% fact. Uh, very similar to the 1622 fleet, the 1715 fleet would run into a terrible hurricane that would smash it into the reefs south of Cape Canaveral. So it wasn't in the Florida Keys' time. It was uh, it was along the east, east, east. Sorry, I can't talk today. Along the east coast of Florida, uh, specifically Cape Canaveral. Uh, Faroe Beach and uh, Sebastian Inlet. So this stretch where the 1715 fleet sank, it would actually become known as the Florida Treasure Coast. So that's the meaning behind the, the title of the episode. Or, sorry, no, it's called the Spanish Treasure Fleet, but the east coast of Florida itself is has a stretch of beach that's a, a stretch of beach that's actually called the Florida Treasure Coast. 
and you can go there and you can bring your metal detector and go looking for some of the stuff. So it's pretty interesting. So uh, after running into the hurricane, around 1,500, sol 1500 soldiers perished, drowning in the ocean while a small number had survived, and uh, they made it out on lifeboats to, to the shore. Uh, the ship's cargo was composed of gold and silver bars, coins, jewelry, emeralds, pearls, and Chinese porcelain, all that went down with the ship. Uh, Spanish salvage attempts were formed to find the treasure, but these goods also inspired people like privateer Henry Jennings, who looted the Spanish salvage camp at Palmer de Eyes near modern-day Sebastian, Florida. So we're talking about the pirates before. These pirates were ruthless. Even after the ships went down, they'd still go after the ships that went down to try to find this treasure. Uh, you have uh, Sir Francis Drake, who went along the, the mule train, the El Camino Real, and he attacked them there. And uh, there were other French privateers like we talked about in Havana, Cuba, who attacked them there. And now we have Henry Jennings, uh, another privateer who attacked them after they even went down along the east coast of Florida. And uh, the King of Spain had been trying to get his treasure back. To here, so he heard that the fleet had gone down. So uh, he made salvage camps at Palmer de Eyes. And uh, Henry Jennings didn't care. He went after the fleet and... Uh, he just kind of screwed them over. And uh, I think they were able to find some of it, but obviously not all of it, because we want to be talking about Kip Wagner, who was the man to be when finding the 1715 Spanish treasure fleet. So now we'll talk about Kip Wagner. All right. All right, let's talk about Kip Wagner. Uh, in the 1950s, uh, building contractor Kip Wagner believed that he had the chance to find some of the Spanish treasure fleet for himself, and so he decided to form what's called the Real 8 Treasure Hunting and Salvage Company. Uh, he himself led countless searches off the coast of Florida, uh, particularly in the city of Sebastian, we were talking about earlier, and uh, he was successful in finding many coins and other treasures off the coast. So uh, he would become like a Mel Fisher in his own right. He would look for the 1715 fleet, uh, and him and Mel Fisher were actually friends, and we'll talk about that. But uh, he would be successful in finding many of these coins and treasures along the coast of Sebastian in Florida. Uh, among the stuff that he actually found included jewelry, Chinese porcelain bullion, which is a, a kind of gold or silver bar, and uh, several cannons, thousands of minted, and marked gold and silver escudos of the, the Spanish coins, and uh, all of this different treasure, and it was really amazing. Uh, because of his discoveries, Kip Wagner actually went down in history as one of the world's greatest treasure hunters as well. So him and Mel Fisher are really up there on the list of uh, the great treasure hunters of history. Uh, Kip Wagner, interestingly, interestingly enough, would actually go on to publish a book that would detail his finds, and uh, the stuff that him and his company had conducted. Uh, this book became known as uh, Pieces of Eight. And uh, I know Ian's read it, so I, I'd have him talk about that if he was here. But uh, I've read that as well. It really talks about some of the same stuff that Mel Fisher went through, actually, honestly. Kim Wagner suffered uh, suffered heavy losses as well. And he, he really had to put in the effort to, to find what he did as well. So none of this treasure comes at a price. It sounds really, sounds really nice on the outside, but you... Got, you got to put in the effort, and it was a lot of effort that these men had to put in. Sorry, I'm adjusting in my chair. So it, it came at a price. It took a lot of effort to find the stuff that this guy did, and 
that Mel Fisher did. Uh, so Pieces of Eight, Recovering the Riches of a Lost Spanish Treasure Fleet. Uh, this has become an important book for uh, many treasure hunters and, and historians, actually. Uh, uh, and if you want to do the same thing that he did, this is the perfect book to read. Uh, tons of different treasure hunters and historians have read this to follow in his footsteps, essentially. And uh, it's a good book. If you guys ever get the chance, uh, we are suffering from uh, the coronavirus, so you do have time. You could read the book. It's a really interesting book, so I do recommend it. Uh, Kip Wagner and his treasure were featured in the Explorers Hall, which was an exhibit at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. Uh, and then he was also in a National Geographic magazine, which was what I was looking for earlier, published in 1965. And uh, I actually managed to find this article while going through the local archives, and uh, it's somewhere in my room. I have a, have an original copy, but I just searched it up on the web because I knew it would be easier. And uh, I'm going to read that, some of that to you guys because it's a, it's a really interesting article. I'll just read the front of that because uh, it really shows some of the cool stuff that he did. All right, so find where I want to start. All right. Romantics like myself take leave of these childhood dreams, reluctantly telling ourselves that such tales have little basis in fact. In a recent book on sunken ships I read, it said that in today's world, pieces of eight and silver bullion aren't likely to be found outside the pages of adventure books. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, it is still true that the coasts of the United States are dotted with sunken vessels. So most of us think, think of this, of these images of gold and silver and pirates as, uh, as fantasy. And uh, Kip Wagner mentioned that himself in this article. He actually wrote the article, if you guys were wondering, the National Geographic article. He wrote this himself. Uh, he mentions that ton of... A ton of us just think that this is a, a fairy tale and that it's only kids' books. But obviously, Mel Fisher and Kip Wagner and uh, tons of different treasure hunters throughout history would end up proving this wrong. Um, and I'll continue now. He said that it is indeed still true, and I found that not all the pieces of eight and silver bullion lie in the pages of adventure books. So, yes, some of this is very much the fabrication of adventure tales, but some of it is also very real as well. Uh, in Florida waters, my associates and I have recovered more than a million dollars in treasure from the rotted remains of Spanish fleet, or sorry, Spanish plate fleet ships lost 215, 250, God, I can't talk, 250 years ago. Our finds have included heavy ingots of silver and gold, magnificent jewelry, gold coins in mint condition, silver dishes, delicate Kangxi chinas, Chinese porcelain, thousands of pieces of eight, and several beautiful chains of the purest gold. So there you go, proving it wrong that this is just a fabrication of the adventure tales. It is still a very, still very much a real thing. People think that the idea of riches and treasure and uh, stuff only comes from books or movies like Indiana Jones, but that's not necessarily the case. And he proved that wrong. Mel Fisher proved that wrong. The Spanish treasure fleet was very much real. And 
I'll argue that it was even better than some of the adventure stories that you could read or have read as a kid. All right, so I'll continue with the article. Uh, Hurricane Barry's Familiar Beach. One of nature's most powerful forces, a hurricane, sent those richly laden Spanish galleons to the bottom. And approximately my own improbable tale begins with the aftermath of a hurricane 10 years ago. On a hot, still afternoon after two days of screaming winds, I stood on the low sand bluffs near Sebastian Inlet, north of Vero Beach on Florida's east coast. I was bewildered. The familiar foreshore along which I had had beachcombed for so long had been completely altered. And then uh, that's kind of where it cuts off there. So if you want to hear the rest of the article, go look for it online or go find your national little geographic magazine but i'll comment on that last portion there he mentions how he had been to these beaches before and he had scanned them for the longest time and he uh he himself had never realized the actual amount of treasure and stuff that was actually on this coast so this stuff realize history just kind of melds into our modern society uh it's interesting. If you think about it, there's tons of tons and tons of history all around us. You could take out a metal detector and I guarantee it in your yard or somewhere around your house you could even find something. But uh history just kind of dissolves. And uh that's not what I believe it should. Because uh history is so important to our modern world because if you don't learn from the past you'll never be able to continue and succeed in the future. So uh he mentions how he wasn't even familiar with the beach. He had beachcombed it before. He'd gone metal detecting, but he never realized until he actually did the historical research that these ships were there and that they were real and that he had been so close to them before and he didn't even know it. So this is why I partly made this podcast for you guys to tell you about some of these interesting theories and treasures and uh, historical tales that really are often overlooked. So that's the National Geographic article. I'll read this little part here. It uh, it has a picture of Kip Wagner actually holding a gold on a scudo, and it has a little caption here that I think is a thing that you guys would enjoy hearing. All right, so it says, the author, uh, house builders turned treasure hunter Kip Wagner directed a team probing sands and shallows off Florida's east coast. From the from the remains of the Spanish plate fleet that sank in a hurricane in 1715, he and his divers have recovered riches worth more than a million dollars. These golden eight escudo pieces, also known as doubloons, bear the shield of Spain's Philip V on one side and a cross on the other. And that shows him there holding, a, holding one of the gold coins. So this man, uh, he put in the hard work like Mel Fisher, and it was ultimately very rewarding for him. He had done his research, he'd done his work, and it ultimately ended up proving true. And he had found millions of dollars like Mel Fisher, and uh, ultimately all the work that he had put in wasn't for nothing. So if you guys put your mind to it, you really can't accomplish anything, like I said before. This man was a, a very interesting figure. Him and Mel Fisher... If you guys ever get the chance, you should read some stuff on them. They're 
They're amazing people. All right. So uh, thank you guys for listening today. I'm going to wrap this up now. And then, uh, like I... Hang on. All right, thanks. Sorry, the, the thing wasn't recording. I don't know why. Uh, thanks, guys, for listening again this week. And uh, to wrap it all up, I'll have another episode out on another historical subject. Like I was saying, it's going to be on pandemics. We'll talk about the coronavirus and some of the other diseases and plagues that have happened throughout history. And uh, I think you guys will enjoy that. Uh, you guys are all trapped inside, so you guys should listen to the podcast. I think you guys will really enjoy some of the subjects you're talking about. I know I do, at least. Uh, but I'm a little biased because I'm the one making it. Uh, all right. So, uh, as usual, I would like to give a shout-out to Anchor, my podcasting service that has been a miracle in making this episode. I really couldn't have done it without Anchor. Anchor's been a wonderful source for me as I've been developing this podcast. Uh, and then more importantly, I want to give a shout out to you guys as my listeners, as we continue to embark on this podcast and, uh, all of you that have liked the Facebook page so far. And, uh, I thank you for your support. I mentioned some names in the last episode, but I'll mention some more here. Uh, some of you guys that have subscribed and been listening, um, I give a shout out to Kim, Natalie, Carrie Zabrin, Kathy House, Cheyenne Paul, Tammy Simmons, Hope Cassell, Robert Carpenter, Mason McGee, Scott Walter, definitely. That's a huge name. Uh, we mentioned them before. Uh, Jacob Minkus, Cheryl Paulson, Caitlin Horton, and Laura Caravu. Uh, sorry if I butchered your names. All right. And all that being said, uh, thank you guys for listening this week. Like I said, the next one will be on the pandemics throughout history. Uh, I hope you guys all stay safe, and I thank you for listening today. As we did our first, uh, we did our first live podcast. I hope it went okay on everybody's end. I like I said, I don't have very good connection out where I live, so hopefully it all went through well. And uh, I got a comment actually. Uh, it was from my mom actually. But I'll I'll mention it. Uh, she wants uh, she wants an episode on the Confederate treasure, and uh, I'm sure she's referring to. Jeez, I'm forgetting names now. Yeah, we'll talk about the Black Plague too. The Black Plague is going to be in the pandemics episode, but uh, the Confederate treasure. Curse of Civil War Gold. I don't know why that took me so, took me so long to think about. Uh, I don't think they're airing anymore, but uh, you guys would like that show as well. Uh, we'll talk about some of the theories that that has developed, and we'll talk about some of the theories behind that history TV show and uh, the Confederate treasure. The Confederate treasure is a very interesting subject, and I, I wonder actually if we could combine it and uh, mention how it has some similarities with the Freemasons and the Knights Templar, which uh, we already did an episode on the Knights Templar, but I think it'd be cool to do an episode on the, the Freemasons themselves, too. So, all right. All that being said, some of you guys came in a little bit later. Uh, thank you for listening this week, and uh, hope you have a good one. All right. Carpe diem. See you guys.